Verse 113, moving from what was the obvious in verses 105 and 112, which was not losing our way, the application for the other verses would be not losing our mind or our heart on the way. There's a term that defines that. It could be certainly applied in David's life to his son Absalom and some others that have been looked at as well. Men once walking strongly with the Lord and then wanting nothing to do with the Lord and nothing to do with the godly men who represented the Lord. And we left off, obviously, in the beginning throes of an all-out rebellion of Absalom against his father on the last teaching that I gave. But simply to look at this right now, in 113, this is about simply being no renegade. A renegade has an interesting implication to it. There are three things to consider, and probably you'd say, ah, okay, I've heard of those terms, and if you've heard of those terms, then you'll be able to say it applies. The terms that most easily defined a renegade would be a deserter. We know that in times past, that was a very serious offense, certainly in the military. Desertion was one that was so serious, in fact, that it had the measure of capital punishment that was imposed upon the soldier that would vacate his responsibility of defending and attacking, defending his brothers, attacking the enemy, taking the next hill. It was a very severe violation because in so doing, it did not bring about what would be called a community defense and offense, a teamwork that would create instability. Over the years, that has been less of an emphasis. There has been great overlooking of such an offense. But certainly as far back as we could cite revolutionary times, civil war, the era of World War II, Korea, those were ones in which the exercise of capital punishment carried out for those who found themselves derelict of duty and abandoning their force, it was punishable by death. It was an interesting dissuader against others that would attempt to do so. As I read from Ecclesiastes, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in themselves to do evil. When you look at the publication of newspapers, you hear the reports on radio, and you ask yourself why. It's because there's no resisting evil. It's acquiescing to evil. It's allowing there to be a payoff for evil. It does not suppress. It brings greater oppression. The situation right now in Israel is a direct result of there being no fear of the reprisals and corrections. It's an interesting season we're in. I do not doubt God's protective sovereignty over his people. I do not get into the politics of confusing neighboring communities. It's irrelevant. 
There are two people groups at war, and I know this, that in terms of Israel, they're defending their land. And whenever there is, again, opposition that forces a military challenge, there will be inevitably, as a consequence, loss of life. That's not God's intention. And by the way, that's also not necessarily a reason for changing your opinion about God's people, about that nation. It happens. War happens. It will continue to happen. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be, in these latter days, conflicts that will arise. But they don't necessarily have to be easily entreated. And part of that is to take by Scripture what the Lord would say. He says in this, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And so moving either also from Ecclesiastes to also the theme that's represented in this psalm today, those who choose to not love the law of God, to obey his commandments and serve him exclusively, become the renegades against true spiritual life and clearly behavior that would be expected by God for any nation that he has so enjoyed one to raise up and desires ultimately to look to him. So the other thing would be betrayer. That's a word as well. These all fit. Deserter, betrayer, and inconclusively, basically, rebel. That would define very adequately what a renegade is. In the church language, though, we would understand it as apostate. It has a relative similarity to that. If you're going to desert, if you're going to betray, if you are going to be rebellious, apostate simply means turning from the conviction of a moral decision you had once made to violate the premise and principle by which you once lived under the authority of a God that you once pledged your life to. So though that sounds complicated, that can also fit quite well in understanding our church age. People not repenting of sin, but repenting of their commitment to follow the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Reneging. All of a sudden saying, well, I didn't really mean it. I didn't know what I said. I was on an emotional high. I was on an experiential quest in which it seemed to me that church was the answer, that God could show me the way. And it felt good for a moment, but then all of a sudden things didn't start feeling good. Is that God that changed his attributes towards you? No, it's the elements of living in a very corrupt world and in a body that itself becomes corrupted. Some of you have noticed a change in me. It's a result of body corruption. I was afflicted hard, but I was in similitude with others that equally had been afflicted, suffering in different ways. The outcome for me was I diminished. That's okay with God. 
If he says, be still and know that I am God, he found a way to make me still. Face plant, back plant. And I was thinking, I think I'm going to be planted in the turf. Those were the things that I was battling with to give you good news, to let you know that I've been keeping up on those who moved into similar affliction. God's brought us all out. He's brought us all out. Some of us have shared longer times in it. But what I am saying is this. It hasn't changed my commitment whatsoever. Even if I was not able to walk back through those doors, and I tried a couple of times, I think one description of that last episode was, you look like you're dying. And I said in my heart, maybe, but wouldn't that be a great way to go out is in weakness and perhaps in death to make at least one final statement of my passion to be here. And so this is important because the rest of this simply lays out a commitment to not be a renegade, to turn or become apostate, because of the suffering that inevitably will be ours until ultimately we go into heaven to be with the Lord. It comes with life. It is not a prejudgment of God upon any of us. It comes with living in a corrupted body, in a corrupted world. But what we do is we cleave to the God who has made provision for an immediate escape from this temporal position of living to the eternal, in which forever there will not be a tear shed, and there will never be a sneeze heard, there will never be a cough that is suppressed. We will be in perfect alignment with God and perfect vitality for the things of God, ruling and reigning with Him in manners and in ways in which our imagination falls quite short. Being one who was in Israel, and in my opinion covered practically every single area of territory that now is being emphasized on the news, it is difficult for me to apprehend how this could be and what it looks like. Difficult. When we have flown in, one of the areas that you first become aware of is Tel Aviv, which is on the Mediterranean coastline. And it has an extraordinary beach, a vast beach. And it is now the area in which there's a pocket, basically a barrage of missiles that have hit. Why do I bring that up again? So I'm bringing it up because I was in Israel in what I would believe fundamentally was a beautiful, non-threatening time. And to now imagine myself there again, I'm going, wow, I wonder if I have the faith to visit. Well, one, I don't think there'd be a permit for me to go there because of the situation of war. They're very serious about the conduct of those kinds of operations. But I know this, it deals when there is opposition of righteousness 
towards those who show resistance in essence are renegades, in essence are those who would say apostate. Turning from what is right socially, culturally, most importantly for you and I spiritually. But I love your law is emphasized. The law, that which teaches and directs me to obedience in God. So what's affliction for? Well, I think for me, the Lord wanted to impress me. He impressed me by putting a press on me on a bed that would not give me up easily. I had nothing that I could do except to press into the Lord, even though I know the greater weight was upon him pressing in on me. And what did it do? Well, according to what we've talked about before, I began to ruminate on teachings of the Lord. I began to consider the things that were directions in my life and the manner and means by which he encouraged and motivated me to obedience into areas that were precise, at times areas that were ambiguous. But the terms and evaluations were always the same. This is that which God is showing me. I would have preferred to have coffee with the Lord and a bagel with some type of cream cheese and maybe just a little slight sprinkling of some savory meat. But he pulled me away from the table. He allowed me to diminish. He allowed my mind to have nothing else that could be done, not even theologically, really not even anything, in my opinion, deeply spiritual, just to connect on the premise of be still and know that I am God, Psalm, 1, Psalm 48. Be still and know that I'm God. Okay, I'm still. Good. Know that I'm God. And that's what he did for a month. I hate the double-minded man. Why? Here's a couple of things. I'm just going to point you to it. You're familiar with it. But the double-minded man has challenges in staying singularly devoted to God. That's why he says it. James puts it this way. Let a man ask, in this case, for wisdom. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8 declares very clearly he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does the Lord do in our lives practically? He brings us to events in which we are compelled to make a decision in the best way that we can, in a manner that pleases the Lord as obviously as we would know how to, and even risk and error. Oops, I got that wrong. Have you ever had a Christian, oops, I got that wrong? You believed sincerely that in a direction that you were going, you made a decision only to find, oops, how did I miss that one? And we've all had them. They can be sincerely an off-target agreement with self, with others, 
in which you missed by just that much. And I've had those. But I've also had God in his faithfulness redeem me from the pit of such a decision. Because he is. He goes after us before we get too overwhelmed by it. But the double-minded man is one who risks his faith if he is not able to make a decision that even though it may have a slant just a bit off as far as truly coming to terms with God, God's able to take that person and correct them very effectively, in my opinion, very expeditiously. Peter was one who had a faltering faith. But you know what? He did something that probably most of us wouldn't do, and that's climb out of a boat in storm-swollen waters. I still don't fully understand it because I've been at Lake Galilee, and I know lakes well. But I have been told that the swells on these lakes during certain given seasons and certainly what we would say in that season for Peter's faith was overwhelming. He didn't time the swells. Okay, three feet to the trough. Eight feet to the peak. No, 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 no. Okay, wind subsiding. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to do it. He just got out and went towards the Lord. He was not being a renegade. And what ultimately happened in which he was overwhelmed by fear of hearing the squall of the winds and understanding the white caps were threatening. But in the moment of faltering faith, Jesus reached out and picked him up and brought him with his faith back. What did you doubt, though? That was a corrective word. Peter. Double-minded, why did you doubt? And the question actually stays there because ultimately the satisfaction of what the Lord was doing was simply meeting him at his point of need, at a time of great faith expression, but of faltering, in which in that episode, he would remember, I cannot be double-minded in coming to the Lord some people have never made the decision to come to the Lord. It's a double-mindedness. It's a fear of what they leave behind for what is unknown about what God is offering. Years, that was me. I can't leave it all behind. I may never get it again. God had a way of ultimately saying, okay, we'll take you up to a higher level of understanding. So you know the story, 28,000 feet in the air because I hated flying. And I happened to be on a mission in this flight to run a marathon. The Lord broke me into areas. My fear of flying and my body quite unprepared to run 26.2 miles. He broke me into areas, changed my direction. Oh, ye of little faith, ye shall be a man of great faith. So year by year, season by season, presently where I'm at. He did do it. Perfectly? Nope. But I try not to be double-minded. Where do we see a picture of this? Actually an exhortation. Move, if you would, to First Kings. Great story. 
but we'll leave it only at a couple of verses because it's the exhortation really that I'm pursuing. Not the full theater of the historical facts of the situation. And I was at Mount Carmel. They have a wonderful statue, marble, I believe, that's carved with Elijah and a sword. And this particular place that is commemorated highly with memorial entrapments oversees the entire Jezreel Valley. What we would also be able to take note of, as far as you can see, the Valley of Armageddon, it was extraordinary. There's so many points historically that it covers from where you're at, and it's highly windy. If you don't have your baseball cap glued to your head, you've donated it to Armageddon. It's that windy, which tells you something extraordinarily as well in this valley for Elijah to have the faith that would say to you who worship Baal, to you priests who are serving him, I challenge you, let the altars speak by the true God who can send fire you can't kindle it. Let the true God then send fire. And I'm telling you, you would ask yourself, could God send a fireball down in this kind of way? Well, he could. It would have made it even more extraordinary back then. Here's what's being said, exhorted concerning this. Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions. This, in essence, is how long will you be double-minded concerning the things of God, what he has shown you, what he desires to show you, how he wants to express himself to you in the days remaining. See, we all have days remaining. I went through a time in my affliction when I was serious about Lord, do I have days remaining? I haven't settled my estate very well, and there was nothing I could do at all, period. No matter how much passion I had to want to do it, I had no resource of energy to do anything but to trust in the Lord, waiting upon him in a time of zero strength. How long will you falter or waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Great evangelical message. If the Lord is God, then follow him. See, that could apply to all of us. For me, I believe the Lord was giving me a directive. How to follow in a time in which as I age... I realize I have trouble keeping up. So one of the practical means by which the Lord said, I'll help you keep up. 23 pounds, Rich, you're going down. And it did help me. I can still, though, go to the mailbox and feel as though I climbed Mount Hermon. But it did help me. God did that to help me. 5'7", and losing an inch at a time, 
I'm five seven and a half. I think it's down to five seven and a quarter. I used to brag that I'm five eight, but I don't. And I still wear tennis shoes that did you know I'm wearing Zachary's tennis shoes now? And the reason I like it is it's sentimental and it makes me look like I have big manly feet. But hiding underneath them are ballerina feet. You can see them if you look at my wiggling toes. I wear the sandals because they're a disguise to my little tiny feet. I can't change things, and I couldn't change necessarily the outcome except, Lord, I've been here before where I've questioned whether I get one more day. There you go. That's my theology. That's my faith. I trust in you, and if this is the point right now in which there's nothing more I can do, I'm not wavering between my opinion about you or even my neglect in doing better to be ready in a moment I know not, even though I do know there's a moment in which will be mine, my reckoning, somebody presiding over me. How long will you waver? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And this is called apathy. And social studies would be bystander apathy, hands in the pocket, Arms folded. Hmm. We see this. We hear the convicting voice of the Lord. We do not doubt the sincerity of this man. We certainly see the conflict of being one on the spiritual side and highly seeing the dysfunction on the carnal side. But we cannot answer a word. Why? Because bystander apathy does not permit you to commit on the premise that you will change your life, on the premise that you will risk your life, and so you zip your lips, and you remain uncommitted, and you remain neutral. Neutrality, by the way, for nations is one of the costs to the nations. It unfortunately took a severe bombing in Pearl Harbor the United States to make a commitment, no longer neutral. I understand nations that desire to be neutral, but there's a time in which neutrality is unacceptable when in the face of wickedness and unrighteousness, it needs to have a commitment. Faith is no less. There's a time in which neutrality is completely unacceptable for the time that you know not remains and the things yet to be done, and the offering that God has made quite clearly. There's a time in which the commitment is faith, of faith is based on an absolute trust and certainty that you're no longer pursuing that which is neutral, that which is no risk to you, that which allows you to do what it is you want to do as opposed to committing to the things that God has formed you to be, and to accomplish him, it's a great word here. You know the rest of the story. This was simply to present an exhortation that's good for all of us to hear. How long will I waver in my opinion about God's will in my life presently? How long will I roll the dice? How long will I be listening to the opinions of others instead of translating the things that God has put in his word for me to exercise his instruction through teaching, his directive for walking, 
that I might obey him and please him. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You, verse 114, are my hiding place and my shield. What great comforting words. I did not find my bedroom a great hiding place. Well, one, it's absent of my wife. And two, it marks to me the place of great affliction. It still smells like an afflicted place to me. And I think God's allowing that to be an evidence to me that it's not something that I should per se be ashamed of, and I'm not. But sometimes the Lord allows the smell and the vision and the audible to be retained in the mind to understand the transaction of a serious encounter that you had with him. I do believe I had a serious encounter with him. It was not a wrestling match that I had with him. It was just a serious time in which no matter how I wanted to be free of the affliction, I would not be freed until time had passed. And as I shared on Thursday, I didn't become a better theologian, but I did one become one who, with sincerity, was more simply disposed of not trying to impress the Lord with language, which I never try to do. I'm just saying there's a time in which simplicity prevails as profoundly as complexity. And I believe that I can pray complexly. Not Victorian. It wouldn't be like Shakespeare. But I do believe I can take a point of prayer and move at length and not lose many. But if I did lose you, I understand. By the timbre of my voice, the inflection, I can put people to sleep. It's a gift. It's okay. Only some of us have it. But when I say that, those particular imprints that God puts in you in circumstances that you entered into spiritually, they are important. Oh, I throw the windows open. I don't try to lice all it. And I'm not trying to give you a raw or something that you say, yeah, it's not that. Some of it, I do believe, can simply be substantiated in a marking that the Lord did indelibly on you. It's like most of us who went through the affliction, food, mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about food anymore. Water, mm, I need a little bit of something in it. Doesn't taste great. Coffee, hmm. Really? I liked it at one time? Changes that are made, and the changes can be good, and the changes will ultimately allow a yielding to a greater understanding of what God does, not in intentionally, maliciously depriving you of anything, but ultimately bringing you to that point where in the stillness that he has imposed upon you, it is to understand that he is God, you are not. That's it. That's what I learned. That's my theology. Oh, wait, there was something else. Simple prayer. Because I couldn't elaborate anymore. I could not speak Shakespearean prayer. So I watched with my son, Avarice, and I shared this on Thursday, my pastor teaching. And it was such a delight to listen to him. Because he came up on a Sunday in place of Ben, 
and he did a tie-in with um, Peter walking across the water, Jesus reaching down, and he was equating it to Peter's petition, Lord, save me, something like that. John said, that sounds like a prayer. Praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Confess to the Lord your shortcomings, sin, the things that have weighed you down, the things that have made you double-minded, whatever it may be. Third, intercede for others at the point and place that you presently are at, relating to them what you've gone through, what you have presently seen of the Lord, and what you expect of him. Fifth, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself with sincerity and with authenticity that God hears you and he is able to satisfy the declaration of your needs, your heart. Fifth, give God a thumbs up. Thank him for what he's doing, though you cannot see it. Thank him. And in my time of being flat on my back, I wanted simplicity. I left the teaching just going, why didn't I think of that? And the Lord probably said to me, yeah, I was trying to get you that lesson like 15 years ago. But you did really good with your Shakespeare. And it had to be your pastor that spoke the language of simplicity to your theology. You're my hiding place. Lord, you've brought me to this place that you might hide me in this place. This place has sentiment and history. It represents something great of intimacy. But Lord, you've brought me to this place. Therefore, it must not be absent at all of the things that I equate it to. Intimacy with you. A time in which there is a solitary confinement with you. I hope in your word, and that's what I did. Depart from me, you evildoers, the psalmist declares, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your word that I might live. And by the way, when you're in affliction, it is one of the thoughts that you have. And it's not cheaply decided. <laughs> Who gives a rip? Get me out of this planet. God gives us a desire to cleave, not to the things of carnality, but to the things of humanity. There's nothing wrong with going strong until your breath no longer belongs. It's not in you. There's nothing wrong with it. I want to have that kind of a spirit that would say, in affliction, even unto the loss, the last of my breath, I found that threshold not to be something I could not cross. We have people that I've seen in ministry over the years that will choose to cross that threshold more than the threshold of a restaurant or a supermarket or whatever because their heart is here because it's the place of intimacy for them. The best of what represents the domestic life, the best of what represents yet the spiritual life. I'm encouraged I will keep the commandments of my God. Interesting, it's not one of the first times, but it is emphasized with an exclamation mark. 
the commandments of the Lord. As we've said before, the power to convince and the authority to keep in order. That's what a command is from God's perspective. He's got the power to convince. He can convince me of what my body has tried to convince me of. My body says you're through. God's word was altogether different to me. Uphold me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to be ashamed of your hope. How do you get ashamed of your hope? This is how you get ashamed of your hope. You run out of patience for the satisfaction of the hope that God has given to you in your heart. How long will you wait? How long, perhaps, will you decide that that hope is worth everything for you to cleave to because it was offered to you by the Lord God himself in a promise to you? How many people have, per se, not apprehended the blessing, not that saying that they would ever know they did or didn't, but they didn't apprehend because they gave up on a sure hope, because time ran out in their mind, on their calendar. And I say, until time runs out in which you no longer can breathe, you hold on to that hope. I'm older. I look at John. He's older. I remember when I was 34 and he was 38. We looked entirely different. But now I look at him and I don't really laugh. I'm going, he'd probably laugh at me. We're older guys now. We've changed pretty radically. But when I listen to my older brother in the faith, remembering him at 38, I'm going, how I appreciate him at 68. How I appreciate. That is a giant, in my opinion, in the faith. And as a teacher, he made one episode of himself avail to my need of simplicity and I got it. Not only that, I taught it. Praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Confess your sin honestly. Know that you're forgiven. Intercede for people on behalf of where you're at presently, where you have been, and where you hope to go. Pray for yourself sincerely, authentically, believing God for every good thing that he is still giving to you in the name of Jesus. And then give God a big thumbs up in thanksgiving, believing that not only what you prayed he's heard, but he shall answer in his faithfulness because he does not deny himself. That was theology. John 68, I can take all the books on my shelf and I can totally box them up because you made it now real. I don't want to be Shakespeare. And you may say, then why are you? <laughs> I'm almost through. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Guys, don't be ashamed of your hope. You rev it up again. You stir the pot. Smell the coffee. Drink the tea. Whatever it is, be in the word. Recite the scriptures. Go back into your journal. Hold me up and I shall be safe. And I shall observe your statutes continually. What are the statutes? The binding force of God in your life. The things that he has spoken 
written in his word, put on your heart, set in your mind. They're binding. God binds his truth in power. And it's nothing that you want to break free of. And God will not release himself from you on the authority of who he is in your life. I shall observe your statutes continually. So I have another day. Continually. How long do you continue? Yeah, continually. That works for me. You reject all those who stray from your statutes. Who are those who stray from his statutes? The ones who are double-minded. The ones who are culturally seduced. The ones who have refused to make a commitment of their future to the Lord. They're the ones who ultimately are those who reject and who ultimately shall be rejected because they have strayed from his statutes. Their deceit is a falsehood. Verse 119, you put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. This means there's going to be a heat coming. We haven't seen it. But ultimately, dross is what floats to the top when a heavy metal is melted to pudding, to liquid. The junk comes up. The fires that we go through were permitted to go through that the dross might come up from our substance and be scraped off. No longer an impurity, a defilement to us, but radically changing the very essence of who we are and what we are to be. And therefore, I love your testimonies. Concluding testimonies is the term that means the way that God sees it, not the way that you see it. If you see it the way that God sees it, that is a true testimony. If you disagree with God on it, that is a false testimony. It is the way that God sees things. That's why you can defend the Word of God, the person of God, your membership in the body of Christ on the merit of what is true, the way that God sees it. What about Israel? It's the way that he sees it. It's the land that he has given them. It's his place where he will rule and reign from. You dispute that, you can talk to God one day in Jerusalem about it. Don't know where I'll be in that mix, but I've already determined that if it's to sweep the streets, I'll be quite content if that's my job. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Two things that are represented here. The fear of the Lord is, in fact, meaning that we have a reverence for him and awe concerning him. But I am afraid of your judgments. Judgments. This is God in what we have defined as one who is dutiful in fair dealings with men. He's fair. So if he's fair, why does the psalmist declare, I'm afraid of your judgments? I can only cite an example that you could probably agree with me on. A bell sounded. I was in 
third or fourth grade, coming from a second floor elementary school down the stairwell with probably a hundred of us bolting through the door. I'm in a pack of running students and my collar got lifted off of my neck and my feet are dangling. And I look around me to see it's the principal, Mr. Carroll. His son was my best friend. Mr. Carroll was not my best friend in that moment. Out of all the kids, he got me. Last Thursday, you heard because I got it wrong in being a part of a production in a play in which I did not learn my lines. I did not care about the precepts. I did not want to know the commandments. I just wanted to be in my position, which was a king on the stage, and I cheated with a manuscript that I told my staff, my contemporaries, my actors and actresses, just go along with me. You're going to read the script? Nobody will know. I think they'll know. My teacher knew. But I shared on Thursday that I got relegated from being a king to the next play where I wanted to be George Washington. I became a hootie owl with green tights, a paper bag that probably showed a good portion of my flank stakes, feathers that I had to put on. God completely allowed me to be demoted. But I learned, don't cheat. Don't cheat on the script. So the point that I'm making right now is Mr. Carroll took me into his office. Nobody else, just me, sat me down. And the smell of the office and the most important visual was the paddle just over his desk with holes that were bored to make the aerodynamics of that paddle effectual on the tender flank stakes of a young rebel. I began to pant thought I was going to faint. He was trying to convince me that he was my friend, Prince of Pal. I'm a pal. I'm a prince. I govern a small school, but I'm your pal. It made no sense to me. His judgment was upon me. What I'm saying is, we have a God that loves us, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. There will be a day in which our approach to him will render a consequence as opposed to a blessing. Us? No. But there will be people who, in the midst of the throng, got caught up in the renegade run, and they got selected. And as opposed to follow in that correction, they said, no more. This is the way it's going to be. So Mr. Carroll called in his secretary to witness the execution of judgment. And my britches not only were on fire, but what was under those britches. I was completely humbled. Tears were flowing. He gave me a hug. We were restored. But it was only the beginning of my correction. For my parents always said, you get it at school, you'll get it at home. Man, wish they had video to show the pain back then. I say that because... It is true. We have a God that's forgiving, loving, merciful. But there is a time in which it's necessary to fear him and to fear him with panting, to fear him with trembling, to fear him with, uh-oh, time's up. My excuse will not work. I was hand-selected for this moment of correction. <laughs>